What is up, everybody? This is Writer Stuff with John Stamp. So it has become abundantly clear that you guys are fans of the cover Jeff Hayes and Plasma Fire cooked up for Overmatch. <laughs> and I cannot tell you guys enough how much it means getting all the support and well wishes for the new book. Um, it really means a lot. And uh, by all means, keep them coming. It's good for the ego. <laughs> um I will admit, though, as stoked as I am to hear about how much you guys like the cover, I can't wait to see what you guys think of Billy West. Um, I mentioned her before, back while I was writing the draft. Uh, she's a, an MA assigned to uh, to an LCS in Indonesia, and Ty kind of kidnaps her into uh, chasing bad guys with him across Jakarta in his own you know, unique way of going about an investigation, if you can call it that. Um, the plan was to have her kind of be a fish out of water, but she ended up stealing some scenes from Ty, and I'm not sure how he feels about that, but she she really did kind of pop off the page. And um, I really, as much as I like that cover, I can't wait to see what you guys think of her. And we are on the clock because Overmatch, uh, up for pre-order now, comes out March 1st. And um, yeah, I look forward to it. Good, bad, otherwise, I can't wait to hear your comments. Um other than that, um, welcome back to uh, to Writer Stuff. I kicked off the first episode with Joe Goldberg last week. And uh, again, new branding, uh, change it up a little bit. Uh, same great conversations. And uh, for tonight, let's get into the conversation. Tonight, I get to talk to best-selling multi-genre author James Razone. James is an Amazon Top 100 best-selling author of the Red Storm series and World War III military thriller series. He's an Iraq war veteran who served 3.5, three and a half years in a combat zone as a military interrogator and contractor. During his 10 years in the military and eight years as a Department of Defense and Department of State contractor, he fought and hunted down Islamic extremist militants throughout the Middle East, Eurasia, and Europe. James holds a Master's of Science degree from the University of Oxford as well as an MBA. He's written technical articles for European journals and advised numerous European leaders in the fields of identity intelligence and biometrics. So let's talk about there. Uh, yeah. He currently writes in two series, The Monroe Doctrine and The Rise of the Republic. The Monroe Doctrine is a military techno thriller series uh, that just concluded after eight books. And in Rise of the Republic, a military science fiction thriller, the ninth book, Into the Uncertain, just launched today. So yeah. Yep. Still three more books in the hopper. Uh, links to both of those series are in the show notes. And James, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you guys. And you got your own release coming up here soon. So I know you're going to be uh, getting excited and hitting that crunch time where it's like, oh, my God, I get this done. Yeah, yeah, it's getting this done. And what did I miss? And uh, and and just in being super psyched but also super scared all at the same time it's pretty There's awesome always something you're going to miss i swear i'll go through multiple rounds of editing and invariably there's going to be someone who's going to email me and say hey you realize you missed this you missed that and it's just like oh all right well yeah. start putting together a list of things that we need to go back in we'll update a new version here shortly <laughs> and there's nothing worse than peeling through a pdf and just digging through that thing it's not meant for editing those things are just such a pain and but yeah exactly right that's uh i think i counted before i sent it to my beta reader i went through overmatch seven times and mm -hmm. then my beta readers read it gave me feedback on that going through it again and then i sent it to the editor for three more runs 
And no matter what happens, there's going to be something that somebody sees and like, man, it's, it's, we're humans. We're not a hundred percent. But I'm not sure what the word count length is on yours. A lot of my books tend to be, I'm going to have a couple on the shorter end when I mean shorter end, like a hundred thousand words. A lot of them will tend to be like the one that came out today. It's I think that's 114,000, but usually they're in the 120 to 140 range. So they get to be kind of meaty. Yeah, they're a little longer books like that. Uh, audio that they range like 12 and a half to 15 hours typically, but um, there's a lot in them. <laughs> it takes a lot right. of effort to go through and have all of those different uh, scenes and, and points of view and characters that you're following because they all they all intertwine together. And they're all very unique and different. Uh, and they paint a really awesome picture when the whole collage is, is done. But sometimes getting through it can be challenging sometimes. <laughs> Both yeah, right and stuff on the, <laughs> yeah, the stuff on the back end. Yeah, mine usually go from, uh, you know, 75 to 85,000. Uh, mm. the, the, a fantasy book I did that, that went, that went over, uh, six figures. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's that. And, you know, at some point you start, you're, you're getting back through it and you just, you know, there's a, that little voice that's like, did I like the older version better? <laughs> like, you're like, I don't, I, even, I forgot what I changed at this point. This scene's bugging me, but I can't figure out why. And I might've had it right three, three, three reads ago. It's yeah. like, oh, or no, worse, you, you create an alternate ending. You're like, oh man, which, that last chapter, do I go with this one or that one? <laughs> yeah. The, and, and overmatch, I had to toss. Um, I had a, I had what I thought was a, was a really fun, uh, helicopter crash off a yacht with my main uh-huh. character, Ty Benhoff in there. Um, just doing like a, like a, you know, the last minute polar plunge. And, um, but like you said, all that tapestry is flowing through and all these characters got to end up at the same place and they all got to, they all got to play their role. And as I'm like, I just, I was so hooked on having that, that helicopter crash. I was like, man, this is going to, this is just going to pop. And I get to it and I'm like, my chest pieces are lining up. I'm like, Doesn't it's not going to work. It's not nope. going to fit. I'm like, I got it. So I'm like, there's no way I'm deleting it. Like I, I put that in the maybe next time file and yeah. let's like, all right, let's see how this works out. But man, yeah. it's, it's the tapestry. I love, I love the idea of, of weaving that tapestry, especially with a really intricate plot that that uh, that works, and like with the Monroe Doctrine, we just finished that thing, and that was it was challenging to get that one done. I actually had to push it back uh, a month because we um we have another uh, Taiwan series that we're working on developing next, and so we actually flew out to Taiwan and we're there for a couple of weeks to uh, you know just check it out. To we went and saw all the likely invasion locations and. You know, routes off the beaches, uh, potential um, you know, locations where uh, your Hellborn troops would go in, or your you know your air assault type guys, or your paratroopers, and saw all that because it, it needed to be able to see all that to be able to better write the book for part of the research. But my goal was to get all this done, was get the book done before we left, and oh, yeah. uh, you know life happens and some things come up and we didn't quite make it so i'm working on finishing the last couple chapters while i'm actually in taiwan doing all that and then uh i was like man so ending a series because you've been on this thing for three years you want to end this thing right and do do justice by the readers um at the same time uh, you know i kind of like the idea of providing like post-war post-conflict what happens to some of your characters? What do they go on to do and different things like that? And I know I've liked that. I know a lot of the readers like that. 
but how do you tie that into a really good compelling end with a little challenging? And so because I was already short on time, we decided to try something different, actually. We we ended it, I think, in a really good, succinct ending to it. And then we gave readers an option to uh, sign up to um, to get a post-war novella that we would create after that. Oh, fact. yeah. And so that was our way of being able to put all of that uh, into there. And that way we could um, we could give that to the readers better and, and have it more refined a little bit better and not take away from the actual ending of the, the series, the book, and the conflict like that. Uh, and it gave us another way of being able to insert the uh, first chapter of the Taiwan series or the Taiwan book that we're going to write next and put that in there as well. Give people a little bit of a teaser. So uh, it's a matter of time somewhat too. When when are we going to launch that? We initially thought we'd take it out and launch it out next fall, but uh, we ended up uh, just looking at the map for when we can get this thing actually produced and done. And it, we just kind of determined, you know what? We've been bouncing between two genres like this for three years. It's very tough to do. Uh, we decided we're going to just postpone the pre-order on that one, and we're going to focus on wrapping up the sci-fi, doing that one really well, finishing that series, setting up what happens after that, and then we'll come back to this when we can put 100% of our attention into it and then uh, knock them all out rapidly so that way we don't have these six-month and eight-month intervals between releases. We can knock them out and, and have them done you know, 60 days apart or something. Yeah, that that stage release you were talking about, it just keeps, you know, when you're still hooked on the way that last book ended and you just see, boom, there it is. You got a, maybe a month, you got a month to wait. It just keeps people going. Wait an entire yeah. year. I mean, I feel bad oh, yeah. for sci-fi readers because right now I literally made them wait a whole year to get this last book. And I did that because I had, I, I just wanted to focus and finish the last two Monroe Doctrine books back to back and kind of get that thing done. And then, you know, I was going to make make the sci-fi guys unfortunately wait a year, but now that now that they've waited and we got the first one out, we're going to get the next three out fairly quickly. Uh, I don't know if we'll get them all, all three of them done this year, but if we don't, it'll be early next year, and they won't have to have that long wait anymore. Yeah, and I and you bring up uh, the making the sci-fi fans wait. I still hold a grudge. Uh, for George Martin for uh, for Game of Thrones, oh, like I'm yeah. still I'm still sitting on that thing, being like, you owe us a book, man. I know it's never it coming, but you you owe us a book, you know. Um, and uh, you you know you mentioned uh, the Monroe Doctrine. Um, I have two questions uh, mm. based on your on your trip to to Taiwan, but to introduce it uh, to those who haven't read it, don't um, mind me drinking from my gigantic water uh, thing yeah. here. Okay, yeah, same. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so I, I I reached out to you to chat because I was I'm really into uh, to Rise of the Republic. I just uh, mm -hmm. uh, when Love I it. get on a kick, when I get on a kick, I'm either into thrillers or or I'll mm -hmm. go hit fantasy or horror or something. I kind of merge just... the two together, actually. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and um and uh, so I haven't I haven't read the Monroe Doctrine, but mm -hmm. so to to lay it out for for those who haven't. Um, AI driven um, kind of China ends up getting a super AI and we just see the world change, right. The, or the challenge that comes of it. And I, and I see it as, is um, I actually looked up the Monroe doctrine. I actually thank you for your website. Cause as I'm, as I'm uh, checking you out today, getting ready to, to talk to you, I'm like going over reading the synopsis of a couple a of the Monroe doctrine books. Any week that's 
been revamped yeah. and done. They're just a little late in getting it live. <laughs> well, you've got a Monroe Doctrine page. So yes, I'm like, I, as yeah. I'm writing a note, I'm like, go to Wikipedia and read the Monroe Doctrine. And I'm like, oh, he's got one. I'm like, this is perfect. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you saved me some time uh, reading the Monroe Doctrine. But to to parallel it for us, so if I'm synopsizing correctly, mm-hmm. China gets China gets a super weapon and they have plans and the world kind of boom that's that's how we react so is that do i have that about you know so a lot of a lot of it goes back to what i used to work in and do on on the government side so when i was when i was in the military um i i actually started on the army side and then went into the air force side thought i was making a, a smart decision maybe it was maybe it wasn't uh i definitely would have excelled a little further in the army side but um uh, so when I started, uh, when I was in the Air Force, I worked, uh, I volunteer, I, they had these uh, special duty assignments that you can volunteer and then you you get kind of sucked into that that world, so to speak. And then you, in the Air Force, you can, you can stay in there quite a long time, actually. Um, and so they put out a call needing uh, human collectors, interrogators, basically. That's a, primarily a mission that the Army w- was doing, but after the Abu Ghraib, um, you know, scandal broke. The Air Force got the mission for a couple of years, and this is not a typical Air Force job. Uh, we usually uh, it's a it's a title, it's called a linguist debriefer. Typically, they have a, a cadre of maybe about a, you know eighty to hundred, and mostly what they're going to be doing is focusing in on like defectors uh, coming in from certain embassies at certain countries and doing debriefings and things like that, or debriefings with pilots and and and, and the like. So the interrogation thing was entire was completely different. So they put up the request. I volunteered for that one, and uh, we off to Fort Huachuca with the Army for you know six. Uh, we went to the basic, then we went to the advanced <laughs> course, and all that good jazz, uh, and then off to Iraq. And so, you know, spent you know an entire year just sitting there face to face with these Al Qaeda uh, prisoners in Baghdad at Camp Cropper, and uh, you learn a lot. But that helped. That led into another career field where I went into working uh, in a program called uh, Identity Intelligence. And so as the identity operations manager at U.S. European Command, you know, we're part of SOCOM uh, doing that task order. And so all of that was biometrics, biometric enabled intelligence and forensics. And basically building out that digital perimeter, so to speak, that that, uh, electronic border, so to speak, to keep the bad people out of our country. You know, like all the stuff happening down there in the south, uh, you see people crossing the border, et cetera, Um, you know, our our objective is to, we have the records, the biometrics of these bad bad people from Afghanistan, Iraq, and anywhere else that we've encountered them. You know, from forensics, from IEDs, bomb blasts. You take all those biometrics, fingerprints, um, DNA, everything like that, and you, we have them all in a big database like what that can be searched. And the goal is to keep them out. And so my job was working on building that capacity and that collection uh, apparatus in Europe primarily. And through that job, I, I, I met a guy named uh, Dr. David Upton from Oxford. Um, I'd gone on from that DOD job to working in uh, the private the private sector at, at that time, but we were in London um, and I had a chance to talk with him uh, at an event at Oxford. And he's like the, a really good expert in What's called predictive behavioral analysis using AI and uh, facial recognition software, different aspects like that to look at and say, how can we predict behavior of people and individuals? 
And then how can we take that and actually apply that to the military and then use that as a way of being able to assess foreign leaders, military commanders, um, governors, secretaries of state, different things like that to help help us better understand policy positions, but then also oh, yeah. communication point, better predict how certain commanders are going to react and operate on a battlefield. It's a whole different litany and layers to this whole. That's a lot of layers. Yeah. Yeah. And each of them are really fascinating and important. And he was sharing with me how <clears throat> he'd been working on a project kind of like that with the Met Police in London, where what they'll do is they'll look at a crime, the crime blotter uh, on the whole city there. And they'll note that during certain times of the day, you have an increase in crime in this area here. And then from these hours of the day, it does a decrease over here. So using some of that smart policing technology, they would move the numbers of police depending on the time of the day to different quadrants and areas of, of London. And because everything is under surveillance there, um, when crimes are committed, they can look back at the surveillance, identify who it did, who did it, put that into their database through you know ID cards that everyone has. Mm -hmm. You're put the face and the name together. And then as the police are out walking to normal patrols and the cameras are scanning for their bolo list of people, that person could possibly pop up on on uh, you know the watch list there. Well, then they look at your Blue Force tracker where your cops are at and where he's at, and you just place the two together. So you send him a message with the, the face and all this stuff there and say, stop him. And they go, wow, wow, that dude's like, you know, right over there. Let's go apprehend him. So that, to me, was really fascinating hearing how they're doing that and then seeing the military application side of that and saying, okay, so in South China Sea, China doesn't want us, obviously, going through their, their waters. So... They know that this American uh, destroyer is going to be passing through here for a while. It's what he's doing. They look at and get the commander's information, who the captain is, some of the people are uh, in the chain of command there, and start building a digital profile. And they know that basically this guy is theoretically going to behave, you know, like X, Y, or Z. So they'll relay that to the ship commanders, and they know what to do to push, push, push. Till they get just to where they might get a reaction or, or really close to it. And it establishes kind of like a new baseline, so to speak. Yeah. So then we kind of back off a little bit because we don't want to cause an incident. So then they'll push, push, push a little more till they get right up to that action point there. And then we're like, oh, man, okay, so let's back off a little bit more because we really don't want to create a war here. Well, through a series of these iterations, they've now pushed you out of the entire you know South China Sea. Yeah, just and, picking at you. Yeah, yep. and you, they're using... You know, they're using a lot of AI and facial recognition and other ways of hacking. Like, my God, TikTok is like uh, the best collection platform the Chinese have ever created in the world. And we freely give it to them. Yeah, um, yeah we embrace but, it. We, we love it, apparently. Yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. So <laughs> the Monroe Doctrine book series we wrote really, really took this a little step further a few years into the future and we looked at that and how they are using their belt and road initiative to essentially connect their factories with consumers around the world that's why they go in and they'll build those ports and roads and rails and things like that that also however is a way for them to then gain political control of the countries because then they own those things because they design them to be debt traps so that way they, they fall into there it also gives them a pre-positioned uh you know, airport 
or a port, things like that for their own ships and aircraft when they need to come in the area. And so it's like, well, what if the Chinese got ahead of us and all this stuff and they implemented it all and decided to wage a war and their, their AI war gamed it out and said, all right, I've run 20,000 war games. Uh, these are the likely scenarios where we could maybe succeed. Yeah. <laughs> Design and put it together. A decade ahead of us just because they ran it through, ran simulations. Yep. Yep. And so, wow. you know, we we just put together a series like that and just said, so, well, let's vent all this out and figure out how we would do it and try to make it as realistic as we can. And then how would we overcome this? How would we change it? And part of the way to do that, we wrote in the book was um, they have such a great profile of a few echelons of the government. The only real way to recover from this is you've just got to wipe it out. You gotta, you know, you gotta basically let them go and move in new people that they don't have profiles on, reestablish and break all the old patterns and reestablish new ones and try to outwit it, so to speak. And we integrated in a real lot of the um, kamikaze suicide drones and autonomous vehicles, underwater vehicles, aircraft. Um, even moving forward with like uh, some of the combat, um, we call them in the in the book. We call them. Uh, terracotta warriors or, or terracotta you know terracotta killers they're basically uh tesla's optimus wearing yeah. lbe and you know weapons and ammo and everything else like that and just given a geo fence that they're allowed to go killing <laughs> you know basically that's, that's, that's where it's the, going that's where it's all that's going the thing. it's so it's so right on the edge and so scary just because it, all of that all that already exists somebody's yeah. just got to Somebody's just got to put the resources into it to make that AI smart enough to be able to pull the trigger on it. And then, like you said, wipe out four or five echelons of our command authority. And we're basically taking a bunch of rookies to the World Series. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. and that's, uh, and, and being there when you're writing that right on the, right on the edge like that, like in my last book, I touched a little bit on the, on the Belt and Road and Overmatch. And part of that is, um, my my bad guy it cleans up a little bit like uh journal at Eritrea because Eritrea's got the same problem. They let China build a port for them. China pulls yep. the pulls the uh, purse strings and now Eritrea's on the hook for debt they can never pay, right? Yep. So part of that I wove it in to give my bad guy some backstory. He's taken out journalists that that are trying to blow the lid and and trying to influence on their own end, uh just cleaning up China's mess a little bit. And uh it's when I was when I was over there, it was uh, it was funny. This is over a decade ago. But, you know, China's building a port. China's Russia's building a, uh, a a railroad. And then what's America doing? America's paving streets. So we're all just kind of trying to bribe all these different countries in our own different ways to have our own spheres of influence to go after whatever rare earth minerals that the, you know, the end of the road lies at. And yeah. at the time I'm sitting there being like, we're 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 just uh, we're just in a race to see who we can pay off the fastest. And but you know you put push it now. China's got a sphere of influence um, that pushes us very far in that in that hemisphere, you know. And they and like and I mean when you were talking about their profiles on these commanders, every time you see a um, a ship do a, a buzz a destroyer, you know they come within fifty meters of yeah. of of the conning of a tower and just like why would I they do that? It's like they're not given, they're not engaging them because. Yeah. You know, there is a, a there's a, a window where you're not supposed to go within. And then there's kind of like a real window where you should be authorized to go ahead and engage them. And they 
I'm a big believer of you put it out there, make it abundantly clear. Look, this is it. There's only, we're only going to warn you once. And then after that, we're actually going to just light you up and yeah, you set the tone, get the so. tone. You set the message. You say, this is, the, this is the standard that we're going to hold and what we're going to do, the baseline. And, and that's that. So everyone knows it. Everyone respects it. Cause like during the cold war, when you're, you know, in Germany, you're right along there, whether you're on checkpoint Charlie, you're right along the, the DMZ there. Those, I mean, there's a set standard there. There's what you can and can't do. There's only mm -hmm. certain little bit of latitude there, and that's it. Like in Berlin, on the East German side, you know, you got the wall. You have a small no man's land, and that's it. When people cross that into that no man's land, they're shot. There's just it's an established thing, and it's yeah. like that along the entire Iron Curtain there. The whole the whole thing there in Germany. It's not good, but at the same point. It let everyone know where where you stood, and I don't understand with our own ships like why we allow them to get like say fifty feet or fifty meters from from the towers because at some of these closer ranges there's no time to react if they were to release a, uh, you know some sort of a, a weapon there just isn't. Yeah, it's like you any know, other reactionary gap. It's just we're dealing with very serious you know consequences. On either side of this, it's well, and they, it's always and baffled me. It was yeah. a joke because they're saying, "Look at this! They have all this powerful whatever, and we are able to do all of these things, and they're not going to respond. You're, we're just poking, 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 and they're just letting us get away with it. So let's just keep poking and maybe poke a little harder because yep. we're going to respond, and that's kind of a problem because then when we need to respond." nobody respects it nobody nobody says oh wow we best we better back off because they're actually going to respond that's why the uh the war in ukraine came as such a shock because the u.s has issued you the u.s and in you know the west writ large generally we've issued a lot of red lines we've issued a lot of don't do this don't do that and then failed to follow through and yeah. when we fail to follow through, they just don't take you as serious anymore. And Russia is not like that. They've issued several red lines and said, uh, if you cross some of these, there's going to be consequences and actions. It doesn't mean I agree with it. doesn't make it right or right. It just means that they have clearly indicated if you do X or Y, this is what's going to happen. And we said, no, I don't think so. And then next thing you know, the Russians are rolling across the Ukrainian border because we dared them to. And they answered the bluff with tanks. And now we're and, in rain. Yep. And you could see it. Uh, what was it? 2014. They just go and take Crimea and we issue a red line. And like it was it's like a cartoon. Putin just takes his toe and steps over the red line and nothing happens. And they well, just, the way like, we'll be back. Right. Yeah, I mean, the way to diffuse the thing is when you can't go back and change 2014 because that was, it, hap it happened. What would have been better is for us to have put moved in like some some forces, possibly even not to fight, but just to say, look, we all have this agreement here that we're going to, you know, the Budapest agreement, Bucharest agreement, we're going to protect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. That's why they're giving up their weapons. The UK, the US, and the Russians all agreed to this. Yep. The Russians 
in their frame of mind, believe they're actually honoring that by doing what they're doing. I don't agree with them, but I, that was a good thing I learned with, as an interrogator, was I learned how to kind of like get in the, get in uh, the enemy's mind, so to speak, to see the thing from their perspective, because that allowed me to then work the ropes a little better to get what I needed for our, our purposes. And I look I use that skill when I look at global situations and what's happening and how I want to war game and how I write my series too. I look and say, okay, how would I do whatever I want to do in the series? And I apply the standard of they're all rational actors largely. I'm not going to write stupid retarded characters that are just going to be characters. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, not realistic. They, they're see-through, they're transparent. They, they see through it. It's stupid. Yeah. Just it, it you no, know, it's just not it's not an, it's not good entertainment, let's put it that no. way. And nobody will continue. They won't see you as a serious writer. And so I look at all that. Yeah. And you look at all this stuff and and we, we blew that off with 2014 and in 2021 fall, if Biden and them were serious about telling them, no, we're actually going to stop you this time. I would have just deployed troops. I would have said, okay, you know what? We're going to move forces from Germany and uh, Vincenza over and put them over there in Kiev and some of these other locations here and say, look, we're going to honor our end of the agreement. We don't want war with you. Let's sit down. Let's rediscuss things. Let's find a way to peacefully solve this and learn to coexist. In the meantime, we're going to put some forces here for a short duration for us to figure this out. But we're going to protect this. That would have diffused. I mean, he would. He wouldn't have gone in because if he would have gone yeah. in, it would have been war against us then. But yeah. knows because nobody's doing that. Yeah. Yeah, and because we decided not to do that, and again, I fault us for it because we are the ones who didn't honor our agreement. Um, he saw it as an opportunity to go in, and he has. And yeah. at this point, can we really say that he's the one winning? You know, our countries are the ones that are facing massive, massive inflation and going into substantial sums of debt and, and not faring good from this. Yeah. yeah. They're not. And, you know, and not only been, that, but uh, the last you know, 10 years. Yeah. Well, look, at you know, we, we talked about Crimea in 2014 and then Iran actually kidnaps our people in what was it, 2017. And we. Mother, may I, can I please have you back from the, as, as the, you know, the Islamic Republic. And every time we do that, what's, uh, you know, what's the rest of our allies thinking? I mean, like if they come like Poland, like if they come for us, are you actually going to be there? Or are we going to get a whole lot of hot air? Cause that's all that's we're seeing. Problem. That's all we've seen for the last 15 years. And that's the problem now yeah. where, you know, you have the situation here in Ukraine and Nobody wants to actually fight and defend. I understand because I'm not a big fan of forever wars. I spent, you know, mm-hmm. three and a half years in one. You know, you need to have clearly uh, clear objectives of what you want to do. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't do a lot of good to give a bunch of weapons and resources and, and stuff if you're just going to have no purpose to it. There needs to be a clear defined purpose. I mean, we're not... If we're going to give these guys billions of dollars of weapons, then for God's sakes, give them the crap they need to actually win. Just get oh, it over with. And just, get it over with, then yeah. 
do this. We'll just give you enough to continue hurting the Russians, but not enough to win. I mean, that seems quite wrong. But enough to, enough to make money for certain people, but not enough to not enough to get those boundaries sealed up. And it brings me back. We're not the, in a recession. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And it's and it's and the the bad part is that that you know as we watch this as Americans, we're we're just unfortunately all of us are profiting off a war that other people are dying in and it's and every time they do it it you know nobody nobody sits back and looks in the mirror and be and is like my country is is gaining from watching other people who have no reason you know yeah they just get it over with yeah if we're gonna go to war first it should be national purpose there's got to be a reason why we're doing it's got to be in our actual interest yep okay if we're gonna go to war for god's sakes let us freaking win it, you know. Yeah. Like, yep. let them win. Let us actually win the war because there's nothing more punch to the gut than watching Afghanistan and people falling from planes as we're evacuating, getting basically getting our kicked out by the Taliban. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the, and the thing is, and what was it, 27, 2008, The Afghanistan papers laid out, laid it all out. It's mm -hmm. just sat, it was right there. They have no idea. And and our you know our leadership is allowing this with no plan and and no real exit you know that it, and it's all sitting there everybody could read it and every, and the people that did read it are just like okay can we fix this and never fix no it and then they just no yeah, desire they, they just yeah no desire to fix it because the money's flowing it's it it's it's maddening but it you know to to uh. You know, my original question about Taiwan was fed completely by this discussion. When you're over there doing your research um, mm -hmm. and you sit down, you know, you meet somebody at a bar and you're like, what are you doing here? And they're like, well, I'm researching a book. Well, how, what's Taiwan feel right now? Because that's, you know, in our news, yeah. it's like Taiwan's under the <clears throat> under the scope. But, you know, in there, do they are they just like, well, they're never going to come here or are they are they actually preparing and kind of worried about a little both? It depends who you're talking to. Um We've are fortunate. We have a really we have a pretty good readership base, and so I, I was able to get put in touch with certain people over there who helped, you know, kind of like fixers, so to speak, who can help uh, set you up with the right tours, uh, get you some interviews with certain people, or kind of lay out who you like to talk to, so to speak, and then they'll see what they can do to make some things happen. Um, you know, so I mean, I, I was really fortunate in that respect. I was able to, you know, we we talked with. Uh, after the couple of professors, we talked with uh, a number of military veterans. Um, really can't talk to a lot of active duty people per se because of some of their espionage laws that they have. Oh, yeah. I think trouble myself. Um, but talked to a lot of people who had just recently left. And there was a couple, we talked to some active duty Marines during like, um, you know, like, a, you know, we have, a, what's it like, a community awareness thing where you got somebody at your base and they invite people on the base, show a bunch of weapons and different things like that. We happened to be there when they had one of those going on at the naval base down down in the south in Kairosheng. And so we were able to talk with some people there. But um, it's interesting. It depends who you talk to as well. The It's a generational thing. The younger generation really wants to remain free and independent of Taiwan, uh, of China because they've never known that they don't you know they've only known what they know uh their more their biggest concern is they don't know if the U.S. will actually show up to help them or will actually be there that's their biggest concern then there's like my dad's generation you know people are born like the uh 
late 40s, early 50s, that generation of people, they actually still have the cultural ties to China with all their family and their father and their parents, but they weren't actually in China when it broke away like that. So that generation, ironically, is, is much more pro, you know, eventually emerging back. Huh. Um, so it's really interesting dynamic to see how that shakes out. Um, it, it's there's people uh, it's probably 50 50 almost like half of them are one unsure if we would show up and but they want to remain free the other half is uh we don't care if we, we'd rather you not show up and we actually want to merge back wow. so it's kind of dicey now their military is a kind of a mess to be honest with you having gone over there and you know if you compare it to a lot of the stuff i've seen and done in europe and compared to them the conscription is really bad. Like it's just not long enough. It's so short that they are able to go through training, but then never really actually work with a unit and get further trained, if that yeah. makes sense. So they're trying to expand the conscription to, you know, a year. Uh, they should do a little longer so you can actually get some use out of people. Um, but they lack a lot of, they lack a lot of weapons and equipment is really what it comes down to. And this is, kind of a frustrating part because uh with the ukraine war the production is getting diverted from the equipment and munitions that are specific that they need and going the other direction and so turning taiwan into a porcupine really is the better strategy to do you know not that place up so that way they can't get in yeah but you know, it's hard to do that when you can't get the weapons and munitions you need. And then the funding gets tied to Ukraine usually. Uh, and then naturally that all that gets blocked up. And, you know, where we had a great plan to make, you know, Taiwan a porcupine, it's suddenly in, in doubt if you actually can. And the easier yeah. the target you make it, the, the higher the likelihood is they may execute on it. Um I think a more disconcerting part with Taiwan is the understanding of like their their food stocks, their uh, their fuel stocks, and how long they can last. You know, it got two weeks worth of fuel for the country. You got two and a half, three weeks worth of food at best. Um, very highly dependent on some of these imports for these items, and so a short blockade would actually do the job. And then the question is, all right, well, if they're going to blockade, are we going to run it? Are we, how are we going to do that? Are we ready to go to blows with uh, some Chinese warships if they decide they want to, you know, actually intercede? Yeah. You got to figure these things out. You've got to say, all right, we're going to do X, Y, Z. It's been decided on. You've hashed over all your consequences or whatever. And you have a plan in place and what you're going to do. Um, I don't know if any of that's being done, but I sure as hell hope someone is planning. Yeah, do they do they even have a plan? It's you know, it's <laughs> are they are they working towards their next performance evals, right? It's uh it's I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's it, it just part of it too is getting them to understand the right kinds of weapons to pursue and do as well. Um they don't depending on the kind of conflict you're trying to fight, you you generally only need certain kinds of weapons. So in their case, they their focus has got to be more on like uh, anti-drone counter, you know, countering that kind of stuff. 
Um, communication is going to be really big because the, the Chinese are going to just jam the hell out of the place. So you got to have some kind of comms that's going to be able to communicate through it or bypass it. Um, you can bet the undersea cables will get will get knocked off, um, and then you're going to be isolated. You know, with the blockade on top of it. So making sure you have a lot, a real, real lot of man pads is going to be really important. Um, and then having mobile artillery. So you can hammer the hell out of certain beach locations. There's Taiwan's blessed wow. in that respect. It's very difficult to actually land and get off the shore. Um, there's only a handful of places you can do it. So you can have a lot of those pre-targeted. But again, it's going to come down to do you have the do you have the artillery pieces? Do you have the munition stockpiles to sustain sustain that for a while? And as we saw in Ukraine, uh, you can burn through ammo pretty damn quick in, in a you know, solid fight. And you got to have an industrial capacity to actually produce that to sustain and keep it going. And that's where we're stuck right now is building that capacity up, you know, yeah. so. And it's that's the fun part about writing these books and these series. That's, man. that's what I was just going to say, man. I mean, everything we've just talked about for the last 20 minutes is another layer. I mean, each one of those problems that's, is another layer that a character can be working that problem with yep. an overarching umbrella of holy series. crap, you know? We have all of that it's stuff being so dense. Yeah. That's why it takes so long to write, though, too. Is yeah. that simple books that can yeah. just be spat out in a month because you're putting, you're really putting a lot of effort in the research and understanding and looking at the logistics and all these different angles and paths and how this works. One that takes time to actually just sit down and read it all and know where to look, do that, then start talking with different people and betting betting angles and that you're looking at doing for the writing, and then sitting down and actually writing it, putting it together, thinking how it's going to work in the whole the whole big picture of it all, and then putting the tapestry together. Yeah, putting the whole thing together and saying, okay, yeah. well, at what points do you kind of say, okay, this will fit for book. Four, this will go in book five, so go in book six, how to progress through and eventually end at the end point you want it to end at. Now, do you when you're putting this together, are you uh do you battleboard it out? Like do you just have a wall in your house that's full of sticky notes, or do you have a are you uh, I guess yeah, I uh yeah, I hate that term. I couldn't <laughs> tell you why I hate that term, man. I just <laughs> you know, I maybe it's because I'm a diehard uh, outliner. But I, that would lead me to it is like, OK, all the things we just talked about are like six different levels of plot and overarching story. And I'm just wondering, I'm like, do you, like I'm I'm picturing you like with like the the uh, the flow chart of all the people connected to how we caught bin Laden, like up in up in your up in your yeah, office. Yeah. And so yeah. but you're you're telling me that that you you well, uh, you got your idea and then you're like, I'm going to write. <laughs> But the thing is, though, like I worked in that world for so long, my my yeah. mind already thinks like that. So wow. I don't have to have a big flow chart on a diagram, and a big old board, because you're trying to figure out how all this crap works. My mind already thinks like that because I, that's what I did for a while, and I was really really good at it. Um, and so I don't I don't have as much of that problem. I I'm not a hundred percent pantser, and I just go mm -hmm. nothing. Typically, what I do is I. I have an idea of what the story is going to be about, and then I have an end stage of what I, how I want it to end. So if I know how I want it to end, and I know where we're currently at or where I want to start it, it's a matter of, well, how do I get from here to here? So 
when I figure out how many books it's usually going to be, uh, say I want this one to be a three book series, usually I'll do longer though, um, then it's just saying, well, how many POVs or characters are we going to have in this? What's mm -hmm. the focus? Uh, get those pieces ironed out, so to speak. And then I, I look at, there is a real science to actually crafting bestsellers and the way your brain works in terms of receiving information. Yeah, keeping, I'm still figuring that part out. <laughs> yeah, it's how you keep your <laughs> yeah. Um, So the way uh, I look at it is, your first chapter or two really should be kind of action orientated to an extent mm -hmm. because you got to grab people and pull them in and you need that to get things kind of going. And then you move to, uh, you know, the way, I, the way I outline it is I'll have a chapter and it'll be, it'll say like action. And then I'll figure out how many scenes are going to be in that chapter. And I'll identify each scene. If the scene is an action scene or a dialogue scene, mm -hmm. and then go to the next chapter. And I, I, I storyboard it in a way like that, where it's either action or dialogue, action or dialogue. And I do try to have it like a step ladder, so to speak, where I seldom will have two actions or I have maybe two action chapters pull together, maybe, mm -hmm. but I won't usually do three because it's too much you've got to have a break somewhere in between there for uh the reader to kind of catch up uh for you in a way to reset the scene or reset what's going to happen or where you get tired back, out and then go back into your next sequence again mm -hmm. and when you can go in this almost it's like a step ladder in a way and laddering up like that it makes it a little easier to write it makes it a little easier to outline and it creates a very uh, engaging story where at the end of every chapter, you've ended it in a way that they've got to turn the page to find out what happens next. But then the next couple of uh, paragraphs are written in a way that it just draws them in where they've just got to keep reading to find what happens next. And yeah. when you've got that going all the way through, whether it's dialogue or action, you create a good page turner and it, and it really moves. But the thing is, you got to keep it you want to be as authentic as you can. And that means creating characters that are going to trigger trigger people that are going to piss them off from time to time because you're like, oh, you know, I hate this woke stuff or I hate yeah, this. Can't believe you stuff. did that. Yeah. The best compliment <laughs> yeah. you can get is a review. Is a, someone's going to give you a back-to-back -back one star that says, this is like, you know, woke liberal, you know, nonsense. And then the next one says, this is mega fantasy land. It's right. Like, wow. Both yeah, one are... stars side by side, polar opposites, all right there. Yeah. That's storytelling. Yeah. yeah, and you guys know these are characters with their own perspective, right? <laughs> right. You're not being lectured to. You're in a story. Every one of my one stars, people <laughs> yeah. who could not separate the fact that this is a fictional made-up story. <laughs> guy. Not real. I love those. They were on a political diatribe. It's like, no, that character is an asshole. Like, that's yeah, just, he was yeah, really that way. And yeah, you know, if you're writing a Russian, your character should be a freaking Russian. He should mm -hmm. think like a Russian. Uh, same with the, any other nationality you're going to write. They need to be authentic. And it, being authentic means they're going to have a certain worldview that's going to be different than yours. And you've yeah. got to be able to understand that, know it, and how to write and convey it. Yeah. Like, and I, I think you... one of the best lessons I learned when it comes to like editing, right? If it, 
putting, you know, I, I personally try to stay as apolitical as I can. I, I admit I did not do that in my early writings. I have since learned and gotten better at some of that. It makes a story a little easier. It frustrates readers sometimes because you don't dive into it. Uh, yeah. But I like to have the presidents where you just don't know what party they're from. And most of the politics, I try to have it where you don't know what they're from. Maybe you can guess. You can, you know, maybe piece some of it together. But I'm not going to paint. I'm not going to. I'm not going to force that on you. I'm going to let you come to that conclusion. Then, me. and that's why. I mean, that exactly is why nobody watches network television anymore because yeah. they can't help but you know they throw the flag before they bother to introducing a character, and they just you, you can tell if they've picked an enemy or an ally. And it's like nobody's here for a lecture on who we should vote for. We're here for we're here for dumb entertainment. And if you can't provide that, then I'm going to go to Amazon where they provide dumb entertainment and I'm going to love it. Right. And that's Um, why I that's why I did diverge from doing, uh, you know, the military techno thrillers for so long and and, and went into doing uh, some of the sci fi. Because uh, after our Falling Empire series, I wanted a break. I needed a break. I needed to kind of like cleanse the palate, so to speak. And so I dove into the sci-fi because it's an opportunity to create new worlds, new everything. Yes. And yeah. part of the challenge with the uh, the military thriller side is there's only so many conflicts we can rewrite or write about and go. There's like there's those shape. There's it's a set tone there. You know, yep. you can yeah, only I, do Taiwan and Korea so many times or or the Russians and this, that and the other. At some point it gets old. Yeah, the globe's only so big. Like right, right. It's like and um I I I noticed the same thing. I'm just uh I've been scared to touch the space side uh for, for a long time. Like I I'm like I can't I'm not try a hard space fiction guy. I mean, like I don't I don't write no, it's, I don't claim to either. Yeah, and um and as I'm reading Rise of the Republic, it's uh it's I, if I got it right, because I'm I'm only like I I reached out to you a couple of days ago just saying how much I liked um, Rise of the Republic, and uh, I'm still getting there. Like they're they're still launching this new ship, and they've got it's like uh, it's like humanity. You go got with a, the box new... set or the the three book no. box set or the first book. I went with the first book. I always okay. uh, I always uh, I, I, I when I when I found that series, I always just start with the first book, and I want to yeah. go boom 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 boom. Um, but it, it's as you're writing it, it feels like humanity's got a fun new toy, and it's like, man, they're they could be, you know, holding, you know, the secret to all humanity, or they could be holding a nuclear bomb. It's like I don't know if we want to give these these you know big hairy apes like the the power to to go faster than light. Like I don't know if we're ready for that. And I just the the potential where I'm at, the potential still sitting there, and it's like this is fun. Like so, yeah, uh, and you don't know. That's half the fun is like not knowing and then being yeah. able to throw in your curveballs and, and and stuff. And like one of the things I I liked when I was writing this, when I picked the timeline of when I wanted to start. So the prologue is in 2070. You go to the the front. Uh, chapter one, I think, picks up in 2090 and we continue on. And in book nine, you know, we're basically in uh, what is it? 2111 and 2112. And so it's honestly not that far away, realistically. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of very similar touch points uh, from today to there. Some of the different industries and corporations and things that are here now, sure as hell, will be around in in seventy years from now. Um, and so I've kind of found ways of how you would weave that in together and do that because 
it's realistic. I think that this is where some of this stuff is going to go. Uh, the whole thing with the um, synthetic humanoids, mm-hmm. they're already working on that. What do you, I mean, that's, that's what Tesla's yeah. Optimus is for. That's what it is. Yeah, they're, going, they're already in factories. Factory workers. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, the warehouse um, workers, factory workers, people that we don't have enough of, it's going to, that's what they're for. And like, think about it. When you're trying to build a, a ship in space or a station, what better thing could you do than to figure out how to take your, this Optimus, you know, machine and just ship a hundred of them, launch a hundred of them up there. They don't need food. They don't got to use the bathroom. They don't need oxygen. As you figure out how to make them work in the vacuum of space and just let them work in building and doing that. I, I believe that's seven plan for, for how we're going to uh, set up a base on, on Mars and, um, uh, in, in in lunar <clears throat> yeah. and as i was as i was reading um i'm reading this and and they're discussing you know like you say you introduce it and you're discussing how we got there and i'm thinking you know the way ai works now you know i, I saw a documentary someplace where they were trying to uh work on using ai to work on drug compositions mm-hmm. and one night they just set the parameters and they let AI chew like all night long. They come in the next day and they've got 40,000 new formulas of a potential medication and one it will fix you. And the other one is the most lethal chemical combination that's ever been created. And they're just like, uh Oh, like the, and then they go back and do the experiment when flip a one and a zero, leave it. And then overnight they've got 40,000 of the most dangerous p- potential formulas ever created. And as I'm reading, I'm thinking, okay, so we got this en- engineer hanging out at JPL or maybe at NASA and like an intern and they're the only dude who understands like chat GPT. And they're like, Hey, yeah. chat GPT for NASA. Um, here's my parameters on how to go faster than light. And here's what I want to see. Hits enter and then hits the bar comes back the next morning. It's like, Holy shit. I think I just figured out how to go try faster than light. Right. It's that simple. You let, you let an automated system dig on it. They'll bring up the potentials and you investigate the potentials. And it could be eight months from now. Somebody's like, Hey, Elon, I think I got, I think I figured out how to make Star, Starship go faster, right? Possibly. <laughs> I mean, that's why, you know, you look and see he's investing in his own AI startup and company because he wants to have influence in how it's directing, where it's really going for, what it's being used towards. His whole purpose really is trying to just to be multi-planet. And I, and I understand that because, you know, the propensity for us to fight wars and kill each other is pretty high. Um, you got a good and, track record of it. Yeah. Yeah. And we've learned from COVID, it doesn't take a whole lot to actually cause a society to implode. So <laughs> I understand the desire to do that. Plus, let's be honest, you know, why shouldn't we? Why wouldn't we want to go to the stars and, and set up colonies on the moon and on Mars and out in the asteroid belts and expand out there? You know, you're complaining yeah. about destroying the environment here because we're, you know, going after resources or whatever. Okay. Well, why don't we develop the technology and the means to go find those resources outside of our planet where we aren't harming anything in space? We can bring it back, refine it, and use it, and turn it into whatever we need to turn it into. Benefits everyone. And the technology that's going to be invented to make that possible is going to benefit all of us here along the way, which is even better. Yep. And, uh, and I can say, um, I won't be one of the first settlers on Mars. I can't go there till they got trees, 
But yeah, the um, I mean, the the asteroid bed itself is, you know, if we could figure out how to snag some of those guys and start tearing them apart, we don't have to dig here. We don't have to, you, you know, be digging cobalt, having having a 19 year old with her baby on her back digging cobalt out of the ground in Africa with a hammer. You know, it's it's disgusting, you know, when you know, it's, we're not far away. What's that? <laughs> Also, you can have an electric car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that we can have phones in our pockets. There's people suffering every single day, and it's and it's another thing we don't want to look in our mirrors about. But it's a it's a hard truth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a, the potential is 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 great. And when you pivot from doing your your the military thrillers, the techno thrillers, did was it just a, like a cleansing of the palate that you're just like I I need a break from this the thriller life I need to go someplace where I can make up everything that happens right or what was it Yeah I mean for me I, when I wrote the uh, Falling Empire series that book starts with rage and moves on down so we conceptualized that book in 2018 as we were finishing our Red Storm series. And we went to Politicon and it talked to a whole bunch of people there about different scenarios we were ginning up for this series. We, I looked at it and I said, okay, if I wanted to jack up the U.S.'s election and undermine everything, how would I do that given the skills and train, training I've had and the things I've seen and done in, you know, over in Europe? How would I do this? And so I mapped out how I would attack that plan and go through and do that. And we just created a series for it. Then it was like, all right, well, who's going to be our bad guy? Because I don't want, I'm not, I don't want to paint one side or the other. Legitimately, I think they're both being used by larger, larger forces. Um, it's not, they're just, a lot of times they're just pawns or puppets to put in there. And you, it's, it's the people around them and beneath them that you don't always see that legitimately other ones that run a lot of a lot of things um at the top is just the, the the signature or the person who signs the check really but you know we look at it and said well there's you know we came with this global group that says all right we got to figure out how we're going to jack up how we're going to you know move our guy into the white house and replace this outsider and so devised a plan and it came down to looking at a handful of states and we were looking at the, uh, the going through the mail-in balloting system and actually uh, targeting and recruiting uh, mail, mail, um, mailmen, basically, and attacking through the absentee ballot systems and just looking at retirement communities in certain communities in certain districts in certain states and just eliminating you know, waves of votes that would have happened. So yep. you're not we're not ingesting new votes. We're just looking and finding out who voted for what from the mail couriers. Um, you know, they, there's ways to open it. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. they devise a way to open it up so they can see who voted for who. So if they voted for this person, you put it in this pile. They voted for they voted for the your guy. You put them in the other one that's actually going to go to the mail. So the ones that are going for the candidate that you're being paid to suppress put those all on the side, they get turned in and you get your cash. And there was a system where they had this whole thing laid out. It was very precise like that. And it flipped the election. But in our case, the, the authorities find out about this, you know, a couple of weeks before the election, their challenge is, well, shit, what do we do? You know, we have proof. We know this is happening, but it's already altered the election. It's already changed it. 
And how do we do this without tearing the, the country apart? And that was the quandary they found themselves in. And then it was a matter of, well, you know, now we've got outside agencies and groups who are now going to come in to help impose what they all believe is supposed to be a legit thing. And it's not. And oh, with their own agenda. Yeah, it yeah. was a great series. Really, you know, liked it. I had no freaking idea crap was going to play out quasi similar. <laughs> it was a very stressful, you know, year and a half writing the series and doing that and seeing everything come out. And my God, did the, uh, the social media hate we got on that sucker too. And the messages and stuff, it was relentless. So I was like, man, screw this. I'm taking a break. I'm going to work on uh, doing some sci-fi stuff for a little while before I roll into the Monroe Doctrine because that was the next yeah. series on the docket. So I only I just delayed that six or seven months and did sci-fi, but I like the sci-fi. It's fun, you know. I get to oh yeah, it's fun yeah. kind of stuff, and I don't worry about this worldly, you know, things going on here. It's all about uh, survival of the species, you know, like get real. We gotta. Who cares about yeah. your about this or that? We're talking about us all getting wiped out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We got bigger problems. Yeah, we, we, got, got, bigger we got bigger problems. problems. Well, you like Chick Fil A or not? Okay, yeah, let's settle. Enjoy Chick Fil A in two years from now. Let's talk about this when we are all going to make it. Okay, people. Yeah, so, higher, a little higher stakes. Uh, more, yeah. I can make stuff up if I don't know what it is. <laughs> right, it's, it's more fun. And, you know, yeah. when you write good military thrillers. It's a lot of work. The research is very intensive, you know, like with Monroe Doctrine. When I'm, if if I want to bring in more coalition partners and have a scene where I've got a, a Polish unit doing certain maneuvers against a Chinese unit or whatever, well, I'm going to have to spend a little bit of time learning what is the equipment in that, in those units? How does it work mm -hmm. and operate? How, what are some of those effectiveness of them? Watch some YouTube videos on that stuff. Talk to some people write all that down, and then write your scene. Well, when you introduce four, five, six allies or more, God help you, you got to do that across all of these scenes, or, or at least some of them. Um, all of that takes a lot of time to do it right, and then yeah. put it together and create the story and do that. But when you do it right, readers love that because you took the time to create a good story that's reasonably accurate, Maybe you get a few little things here and there wrong, but you know what? You put in a lot of effort on it. It, it reads like a stellar story. Uh, I mean, I can look through uh, Tom Clancy's earliest works, and I can I can spot a handful of different errors, whether it's point of views, you know, head hopping, you know. Like, mm -hmm. Sorry, this we're in this character's point of view. He's not going to know what this character's thinking inside his head. Okay, there's certain things that are errors, but that's hindsight and. I just want to create stories as good as I possibly can. And um, that does ne necessitate taking a little more time to do it sometimes and working yeah. with a good editor. My editor is not cheap. Uh, she's very quick, though, but she's not necessarily cheap, but she's extremely good and helps keep me on track. And that does that does help a lot. Yep, I'll I'll take a good editor, somebody who's not afraid to like red pen everything I've done and and mm -hmm. just tell me to go back and do better. Like if well, I get like, to be I'd, a better writer working with her too. Yeah. Yes. She's making they me tighten she everything up. Ann Arbor, Michigan. You know, I mean, most people know I tend to lean a little more on you know a little more on the conservative side, but you know, she's far on the other side. And that's great mix because it helps me stay political with what I want to write. And that's what I want to do. I want to my job is to 
give you a break from reality and life and just give you a good story to sink your teeth into, not preach to you or do anything else like that. That's not my place. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, so far I'm, I'm loving it. Uh, that's uh, my, you know, my first book, but uh, I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I've got you. Know. And What's that? There, wait until you dig into the Monroe Doctrine. You're like, holy crap, this is over. Oh, yeah. And that, like that, you'll just get sucked in, man. Yeah, that's that's next because the the just the uh the the back cover is just enough of a of a creepy, scary, so close feeling that I'm like, yeah, that's next. <laughs> you know, it's right. it's uh right on the TBR. Um I'm but I've kept to, you I'm almost the other two because like in the in, in in uh into the stars right the, the first book for that series mm-hmm. you've got this thing where everything like the reason we have the republic is because everything kind of fell apart you know so we start out we've got the greater european union which is all of europe and russia you know russia and germany are the ones who kind of dominate that and then you had uh, you had the asian alliance which was a emergence of of India and China, most of the Pacific Rim areas there. Uh, then we had the Republic, which was all of North America, and then include, uh, included uh, the UK and Ireland and Australia. Why? Because it's English. It was a common English language, and all of those countries just went together for based on the common language, history, culture, religion, things like that. They fit there. And then, uh, you know, South America and Africa were kind of a mismatch of, of alliances, mostly, you know, weaving between the major powers. Um, but that happened because we we talked throughout the series about the AI war. And the AI war is a real reason why there's a reticence to bring back the, the synthetics. And you'll learn later on in the, in the series that combat synthetics because... Uh. That is what nearly wiped them out. And so they're very hesitant to bring them back, even though they're battling these, these aliens and they need them. They're also very, they're also recognizing that this thing that we're talking about bringing back, dear near wiped us out. So how are we going to make sure that that doesn't happen again? Because we're about to arm the shit out of them. <laughs> yeah, we, so, we, uh, yeah, we open Pandora's box or we don't, but we yeah. might not be here if we don't. <laughs> So what I want to do actually yeah, yeah. Uh, is when the, the sci-fi series ends, is then actually go back and write that AI war, because yeah. that actually is a good way for me to do uh, the next series post Monroe Doctrine is to go into doing that, and then taking the sci-fi and bringing that audience back to find out how they got there, bridge so, all three of them together. That's, it's kind of like, yeah, it's yeah. like an origin story for the sci-fi to figure out well where did it all start, how did they get there, and then for the Monroe Doctrine, it's that for them it's like well, where are they going next because we painted a certain level of it. The next level is that that the, the next series, and so for me, I'm I'm trying to map out how I'm going to make that work and and bridge the two the two audiences together because I would say half of my thriller writers or my thriller readers have read the sci-fi and maybe 25% of my sci-fi readers have read my thrillers. But if I do the series right, I'm hoping to actually merge the two together and go, damn, this series really was pretty cool. The sci-fi readers will go, oh crap, that was neat to see that. But then they're also going to realize, well, heck, there's actually a story before this one that led to here even and get them to go back to the Monroe Doctrine. 
And uh, yeah, people, people don't like to jump out of their genre, but that's just, but that's how we push stuff forward. Right. Like figuring out, like you said, figuring out that way that nobody's cracked yet of bridging these three, almost three different genres, the military thriller, techno thriller, sci-fi thriller, and getting people to jump those genres is how you push this writing thing, the next step. Like, how do we do that? And then somebody else will figure out how to bridge it, you know? It's uh, well, yeah, it's an evolution in that world. It's essentially staying in the the ecosystem of the world and timeline, so to speak, that you created, and, yeah. and then keeping all that content there. And you do a good job with it; it becomes quite large. People really enjoy it. They'll they'll stay in. They'll tell a lot of their friends and continue to grow it. Hopefully, yeah, it's such a challenge. I I, I can't wait to see how you pull it off. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I enjoy it. I got into, into writing for me. I got into this doing uh, as PTSD therapy for me. And so it's been uh, really good. And it's not something I'm going to stop because it's for me, it's still good therapy to continue doing that. And I, I enjoy it. And I like being able to um, what I really want to try and do is actually travel a little more for the job to yeah. go see more of the places we're going to write about um, so I can um, get a better sense of it. Uh, I we lived in Europe for you know three and a half years, and so I've been to a lot of Europe. Um, you know, I've traveled at this point close to fifty countries. I just haven't been to a lot of Asian countries yet. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I want to focus a little bit more on. Yeah, and um, uh, I just I just drew a blank. Uh, you're talking about traveling and. Oh, oh, yeah. Nobody tells us. Like you said, you know, the the writing is therapy. It's that's the thing you say you're not going to stop. But they they don't tell you once you get into this writing game, it's uh, it turns into an obsession, whether you want to stop or not. Mm -hmm. It's there. And if you don't get it on the page, it's going to eat at you. You know, (laughs) it's it's, so, yeah, you're in you're in it for the long haul, whether you know it or not. (laughs) Right. It's just nobody tells us that nobody tells us that when we start. It's awesome. Yeah. You know, and I'm not going to lie. I mean, there's. The way the way some of this is set up, um, you're not you can make as much or little in this business as you want. Uh, I'm not going to say it's easy to succeed or to make into the you know make into the mid or high six figures or or more, but it is attainable and it is doable. Um, it it just requires a lot of work. But that's the thing is. Um, writing is a, like this is a job it is an actual business so there is a business yep, yep. you know function to it understanding how to market and all the data side there and then understanding how do you build business credit how do you establish that for your business EIN are you an LLC or an S corp you know we're an S corp how we've designed ours um <clears throat> What do you do for business credit? You know, getting a business credit card. Then what can you do to start working towards getting a, a business line of credit? So then you have capital you can draw on when you need it and try to grow that uh, and start investing in the marketing game and learning how to get really good at digital marketing so you can find readers, hook yeah. them in with your, your quality work, and then grow that base. Because when you first start out and you have a small base, you're writing a lot of books to feed a small number of people uh, content. When your base, however, expands and it's now 100,000 or quarter million readers, it's not that you get lazy, but you can spend, you can write instead of doing five or six books a year, 
you could slow down and you can write maybe two two books a year, two really good ones or or one book a year where it's just a very complex book that requires a couple layers of conceptual developmental editing. And it takes time to create. Um, you know, you can create some really cool stories like that. But again, some of the, the more complex the story is, I mean, some of these really epic stories like that, like A.G. Riddle does incredible, amazing stories. I, I love reading his stuff and uh, he's kind of gotten there over the years to where he can, he just does one incredible, amazing book a year. And, you know, the visual cues, the layering of the the onion, so to speak, and how he has all these different aspects of the story, really amazing. But that takes time to do. Yep. To do it right, to, it, it does take a little bit of time. You can't mm-hmm. rush some of it, basically. Yeah, and if you, if you don't get it right, they're going to call you on it. So it's, oh, it's, yeah. Uh, it just, yeah, if you're going to put out a good product, flops. put out a good product, you know? Yeah, it it's, kind of flops if you don't do it right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, I've uh, I've kept you for an hour. I told you I wouldn't keep you over an hour. Um, but I do have uh, one question. I got no time limit, so whatever you need. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Probably um, I do have, yeah, I gotta, I gotta start getting a couple little guys ready for bed, but um, I do have one question and uh, I ask everybody public servant uh, veteran that comes on board um, and, and for your service, I, I just want to, you know, give it out there for anybody else. Any, anybody who's listening, think of the 18 year old that's trying to figure out what to do with their lives and they're standing in front of the military recruiters. What advice would you have for them today? Take the leap and do it because change is scary, okay? It's always going to be a little scary because you you don't know what's going to happen. It's that unknown. It's that mystery. And you've seen all the movies and heard all the horror stories. It's just never going to be as bad as those people make it out to be. But, you know, you're going to get exposed to a lot of opportunities you wouldn't have had otherwise, uh, there's a lot of unique jobs just because you get a job at the beginning that you don't necessarily like or want to do doesn't mean you're stuck in it. You have a lot of chances and opportunities to move around and do different special duty assignments or change career fields entirely. Uh, but, you know, you're going to get those experiences and chances to live abroad or go go see different places. Uh, and the education back is going to help you too. you know, getting that that uh, GI Bill. So you have that for yourself or to pass down to your kids if you decide you don't want to go to school and just stay in your trade. Um, But it's an opportunity to better yourself, to serve your country and to get out of whatever circumstances you feel you're in. You know, I didn't my parents were going to pay for college. I was going to have to figure that out myself, you know, and so. Uh, at the time, my uncle was in the uh, Army National Guard in Wisconsin. He's an active guy, worked full time doing that. And so he talked me into going and doing that. And so I was I joined up and did that and was able to get my college paid for while I worked a lot of, uh, I would go on orders a lot with the Guard. And so oh, I yeah. worked a lot of times on, on orders with them doing whatever they needed, basically. But it gave me a lot of great experiences, gave me a paycheck while I was in college and doing well. Um, it kind of set me up for a lot of things later on when I uh, finished college and then went into the Air Force and pursued that. And then one job leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. And yeah, it's how you build a cool career. You know, yeah. you had a lot of stories to tell, you know. Yeah, and, and there is no place else that will give you the variety of opportunities that making that leap does. So it's Yeah, well, like, at yeah. the end of the day, though, you know, 
if you believe in freedom and democracy, if you believe in the principles of our country and in the Bill of Rights and our different constitutional amendments, then you should be willing to volunteer to protect it. You should be willing to serve to ensure that your kids will continue to have it, that everyone else will still have it. The fact that we have so many young people that are unwilling to do that, but at the same time, they embrace all the freedoms and you know benefits of it, there's a real disconnect there. And the military is not a bad life. It's not a bad experience to, you know, by and large, it's a lot of opportunities. It's what you make of it. You know, you can't always control the situation that happens to you. You can, however, control your response to it. Um, And you're not always going to respond the right way. You're going to jack it up and make horrible, terrible mistakes sometimes, but that's life and learning. (laughs) That's right. Being able to pick yourself back up, say, damn, did I screw that sucker up? Uh, Let me restart. And let's try that again tomorrow. (laughs) Yes. And tomorrow's always that. And yeah, I mean, you nailed it. It's, if you're going to be a part of a community, you need to be an active part of that community or that community fails. That's just the way it is. It's, and it, you it's can have a good same, community or you can be part of one that's circling the drain. Yeah, yep. I mean, I just, I'm so frustrated. So my friends are like, well, I don't like this. I don't like this. I'm like, well, are you involved? Yeah, you, what, what part of it are you taking? Yeah. Yeah, are you yeah. actively, you know, participating in your local government, your community? Are you... Are you researching candidates? Are you gonna like get involved and vote in the primaries? Do you donate to their campaigns? You know, what are you doing to be the change you want to see? You know, like Gandhi you know, talks about that a lot, where if you want a better world, you want a better society, then you need to be the example of what you want to see. Be yep. that example. Otherwise, how else is it going to come about? Yeah, go get it, Eric. Nothing's gonna change, you yeah. know. Yeah, but uh, uh, James, I I appreciate you uh, for joining me tonight, and it, I know it was short notice, but uh, thanks, man. I I really no, like talking to you. If you want next next time, come and talk about the uh, like writing as therapy and doing yeah. that that angle because that's a big one. A lot of vets don't always realize that or hear about it. Um, and there's a few different treatment things that I've tried and done that I can gladly share what some of those are like because. Not everyone's heard of them or knows what it may, what it's like. And so they may not be willing to try it, but they're game changers, you know, from that stelaganglion block injection, you know, SGB injection to um, like ketamine therapy, honestly. Some of these things are really game changers when that war in the mind is uh, not a war a lot of us have have won or, or, or win. And that's a real big thing to try and counter. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I tell people, sorry, I lost my camera for a second. I tell people that all the time is, uh, you know, they, it's, you know, it, there's, there's stuff rolling around up there and you just start writing and uh, it's Ouch. just, you can write it out and, uh, you know, it'll build back up. You write it out again. And it's just a way to wash that stuff, you know, at least keep the cycle moving, you know, and it doesn't build up. It doesn't wear you down. So it's, yeah. it's important. And, and yeah, people are t- intimidated by the idea of sitting in front of a keyboard and throwing stuff on a page or sitting there with a pen and writing stuff out, but it works. It works fast. Don't think about it. And they need to, they need to hear about how that works. Like I, we may be wild. We may be really successful at this, but it, it didn't come naturally right away. Uh, it was an astronomical amount of work, but taking a lot of risk along the way, but I didn't get into any of this until, you know, I've kind of like had my, 
really hit rock bottom with some of the PTSD stuff I was struggling with. And then finally, you know, sought out some help over at the VA. And the person there just probably thought they're sending me down a rabbit hole, honestly, by saying, well, why don't you just write a book? You know, she, she's just yeah. thinking she's giving me an assignment that I'm going to be doing for like, you know, a couple of years and nothing's going to come of it. I was yeah. like, well, write a book about what? Because I was doing that cognitive behavioral therapy stuff. That stuff's mm -hmm. terrible. Um, and that has you doing a lot of writing. And so I was like, well, what would I write about? She says, well, why don't you write the kind of book that you want to read? And she's thinking she's sending me down a rabbit hole. I was like, huh, yeah, that could work. And so I started doing exactly that, writing what I wanted to read. I became really passionate about it and involved in it. And it was like, that became, it took my mind off of what was just tormenting me and put me into that. And I was really focused on that. And then that uh, was, it turned into like the first book we published. And then I just kept going with continuing the story and continuing it out. And it's kept, kept me going and focused on that because uh, it gets, it, it can get kind of bad what you're fighting and dealing with if you let it fester. And this was a good yeah. way to get it out. Yeah, we need to uh, definitely schedule that out because there's there's a that could do a lot of good for a lot of people that just aren't or they're a little afraid to take that step. Yeah, they're a little afraid, afraid to take that step. They're afraid to yeah. ask for help. They're afraid to mention anything. They're afraid, well, I'm going to be viewed as a pussy or whatever because I asked this. It's like, dude, no, you're the one who volunteered to go into that hellhole. Yeah, <laughs> you're, not, yeah. you're not the pussy here. <laughs> yeah, you've already, you've already, you're good. Like you're good. You can, you can try being an artist too. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and frankly, here's the other counterpart. Okay, you can actually make a fair bit of money in this business if you learn how to do it the right way. Um, yep. And there's a handful of veteran writers out here who have figured it out, who are pretty open to sharing that right way with others too. So, you know. That's the other counter too. Is you, you're afraid of? Oh, I don't want to do this artsy fartsy stuff, dude. I don't consider myself an artist. Okay, I carry, I consider myself a storyteller and a business owner, and that's yeah. how it works. You know? Yeah, and it's and it's it's just taking that first step, and then once you do it a couple times, it doesn't take long before you no, see the benefits. Once you're really. good, <laughs> yeah, it's a, and then you and then when you're itching to do it again, you know that you, this is a lifelong pursuit, and there's no getting out of it. <laughs> right <laughs> and it's a great opportunity yeah. because you know the, these books are going to be around 10 20 years from now and as long as you you know put a little advertising behind some of these things and keep them going you're going to continue to make little residuals off this stuff but a little mm -hmm. residual off of a lot of books and mm -hmm. and audiobooks things like that that actually adds up you know yeah. over, little, yeah. over time it's going to it's going to pay dividend dividends and you're going to find that community and those people that love it. And they're, yep. and you're just going to find yourself talking books and it's, yep. Yep. And that's, guess how, we, that's how we get here. Out of your funk. You're out of your yeah. funk. You're, you're not yeah. like wanting to blow your brains out anymore because you're actually enjoying something. You found something you're good at and like, and you're having fun. It's, a, you know, it's that active your family at the, at, at the same time. So, you know, win, win, win. Yeah. yeah. And that active creations, that's, that's the whole thing. Yeah. But no, we'll, we'll, we'll we're going to get set some more time for that. I'll, uh, uh, you got the link, just yeah. pick another, pick another date, man. And, uh, and we'll, good, man. we'll go at it again, but I uh, thank you very much for joining me tonight. And, um, I will, I will talk to you again very soon. Sounds good. All right. Good night, everybody. Mm -hmm.